well done. That's great. Well, lots to think about, lots to talk about. We'll, uh, we'll uh, return to that subject in just a minute. Uh, but if you're joining us today for the first time, perhaps, we today conclude a four-week sermon series on Come to the Table. We've been looking at the Lord's Table, and we've been reflecting on its different kinds of meaning. The first week, Jane focused on the term communion. We thought about our unity in Christ. The next week, Eric focused us on Eucharist, that word that means thanksgiving and how we thank God in this table. Last week, Dave Palmer, our university ministries director, shared about the Lord's Supper and how Jesus Christ uh, fulfills this covenant and makes it possible for us to relate to God in such an intimate way in this meal. Well, today I have the uh, challenge to think about this meal as a foretaste of a grander meal to come and a grander reality before us. And so what I'd like to do is read actually three passages and share those with you, and then we'll move into the body of the message. The first uh, passage we're going to look at is from Isaiah chapter 25. And uh, what I'd like to share here is that this is really a vision of the prophet of an end times feast that the Lord will prepare. Here we go. Isaiah 25, beginning at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Notice the word all. It's going to reappear several more times. A a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove His people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Our next reading is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 the Lord's Supper, the last evening of Jesus' life on earth. Verse 14, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink it again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And lastly, from John's Revelation, chapter 19, beginning at verse 6. John writes, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, what uh, rich texts, what challenging texts as well. 
Guide us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit and inflame our hearts and our imaginations. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've rarely heard so much energy around a sharing question. That was great. It was really tough to get you back uh, to this place, and I'm glad for that, and I wish I could hear from all of you what your best dinner was and why. For me, as I think about that question, some of the best meals I've had usually occur on special occasions. They've been at graduations or at wedding receptions or at anniversaries. And I've realized that these great meals around these great occasions really introduce us to a new identity of the people who gather. A new identity. There's a graduate. There's a new bride, a new groom, a new husband, a wife, a new retiree. These are new identities for new people. And there's a new reality that's being celebrated. Well, this really is the idea, I think, that this meal points us toward, the Lord's Supper. New identities as we come together around it, a new reality that's introduced here and will become fuller as time goes by and then be fulfilled in the future. And it's been interesting for me as I've prepared this message to look at not only the Isaiah passage, but also some of the intertestamental literature. I don't know if you know about that, but we have in our Bibles the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there's this 400-year gap between them. And there was a lot of writing, religious writing, going on in in the Middle East, in in Israel-Palestine then, and it didn't quite reach the level of sacred scripture, so it's not in our Bibles. But it's really helpful to understand what was going on in the minds of the Jewish people in particular during this time. And so we have, uh, we have, for example, Dead Sea Scrolls that have helped us think about this great messianic feast that the Jews were anticipating in the future. There are uh, apocryphal and pseudepigraphal, that's hard to say, pseudepigraphal literature uh, that was written also about this feast, books like First Enoch and others. And this literature paints a picture for us that would have been familiar to Jesus and the others of the first century. And as I've looked at this material, I've learned that this messianic feast, this great meal to come, has about four different aspects to it that Jesus would have known about and then alluded to in his teaching and ministry. The first thing that this literature points us to in this intertestamental period is that this meal was anticipated as metaphorical, not literal. It was metaphorical. It was not just one great meal to come in the future that God would provide but it was metaphorical for an age, a period, an ongoing eternal period of of goodness and and wonder that God would begin to initiate. This meal was metaphorical. It was more than that. It was terrestrial, meaning that it was was rooted in, in creation and in the earth and not just some sort of wispy, heavenly reality. It was, it was heaven come to earth and celebrated among people on earth. It's like we get in the book of Revelation, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, coming down, down to us. And so it's a rooted, real celebration. It's terrestrial. But not only that, it's a third thing. It's universal. Not only Israel, not only the Jewish people get to enjoy it, but all people, all the righteous in God will enjoy and be included in this meal. And that means you and me, the Gentiles. In fact, that very word goyim is used in the Isaiah passage. All the nations are included in this great meal to come. 
And so it was metaphorical, it was terrestrial, it was universal, but it was also something else. This meal to come was just and victorious. All of the Lord's enemies will be defeated. Among them death, that that shroud that covers all humanity, that, that terrible reality we have to live with. That will be defeated. And so we have this amazing, rich, Uh, multi-dimensional meal that points us to a reality that is to come. And Jesus took all these things and more and focused them in himself and in this meal that we celebrate here. He casts our gaze and vision forward into the future. And we saw that in the Luke passage, didn't we, where it says that I will not drink of this cup or eat this bread until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. It points us forward. The Apostle Paul, as we so well know, and in the words of institution, he says, for often, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. What? Until he comes again. Until the Lord returns. And so this is a meal that, that embraces the past, the present, and also the future. Well, as we consider these things, As we think about these ancient longings fulfilled in Jesus, what does this table mean for us today? What does it mean for us? Well, the future this meal signifies means several things. It means, first of all, that we can live in hope. We can live in hope. You know, when I was younger, I I somehow uh, thought that human life just sort of went on and on and we got better and stronger and better and stronger. And then I hit middle age and realized that's not really true. <laughs> you don't get better and stronger as you get older necessarily. Uh, and then I took on congregational care at this church and, and I see, I see what we wrestle with, with aging and death. And this meal and the future it signifies tells us that we can live in hope. Why? Because aging will be overcome. That aging that we live under that's so palpable and so real for so many of us, that aging will be overcome in the resurrection to come that this points us toward. Death, death, that shroud that enfolds us, that death will be defeated once and for all. We can live in hope. Justice will be served. Terror and violence and war will end. And this meal points us to these things. We can live in hope. The other thing this meal points us to is the new reality to come, the new heaven, the new earth, a place of unspeakable beauty, unspeakable beauty. I just got back a few days ago with my family from a vacation time in Utah, and I don't know about you, but I, I feel very wired to appreciate God, God in creation. I see God's beauty in, in creation, and it moves me deeply. And so we went to uh, Moab and visited uh, Arches and Canyonlands National Parks. Has anybody been to Arches and Canyonlands? So many of you have. Do you remember how beautiful it was? Well, I, on the, uh, one of the first mornings we were there, I brought my bike and I went for a bike ride. And this is what greeted me that morning, this scene. That is a bike path along the Colorado River, not far from Moab. And about six in the morning, I went for this ride. And I saw the sunlight coming up and bathing that cliff in light. I saw the still water of the river, felt the cool air around me, heard birds. And you know something? I started to blubber. I was so moved. 
so moved by the beauty of creation. Do you ever feel that way? And then, then over the next several days, we went to arches and we saw pictures like this one. There we hiked and there I am with my sons and there's a delicate arch, just stunning with the slick rock all around it. And then we went to Canyonlands and we saw, or actually in Moab, this next picture in arches, just the stunning rock formations crafted over millions of years and I was so moved by the beauty of the Lord. And then this last picture from Canyonlands, looking over just something that's arguably second only to the Grand Canyon. And so moved we were, all of us. And this beauty, friends, this beauty is just a taste of the wonderful beauty to come. It's a foretaste. And we, in our imagination, can imagine that here at this table as well. Rupali and I drove uh, one of the cars we took, and we came back, and it was a lot of driving. Um, and we played, she's very good at playing games, uh, mental games to keep us alert. And so one of the games we, she brought up was this sharing idea, was when we get to heaven, when we get into the afterlife, who are you looking forward to seeing? And we started to rattle off relatives and church members here in this church and others and it became this amazing exercise of a great reunion to come. And that too is here at this table when we think about all the people we've lost in Christ who will join us in the future to come. And then I think about the personal and individual implications of this, how, how we're going to be new. You and I will be new, set free finally from all those things that warp and confuse us. We'll be new, completed, healed, and delivered. No more compulsions, no more addictions, no more idolatries. We will be our true selves. What a gift that will be. We can live in hope. And the world around us will finally be delivered and redeemed and made whole. And there'll be no more famine and no more pollution and no more environmental catastrophes. We can live in hope. That's our first point. What does the future of this table signify? It means a second thing. It means we will live in unity. We will live in unity. There's an interesting sort of invitation that many pastors and priests and others give when they come to the Lord's table. They say these words from Luke chapter 13, words of Jesus. They say something like this. They say, friends, this is the joyful feast of the people of God. They will come from east and west and from north and south and sit at the table in the kingdom of God. Think about that for a minute. Think about the, the mixture of people that will celebrate in the new life to come. Think about our brothers and sisters who are going to be right next to us. They will include blue and red, liberal and conservative, illegal immigrants and ICE enforcement officers. All who trust in Jesus will be here in this table in this feast to come. All of them. And when you think about that, doesn't it make you wonder if that reality to come ought to influence how we treat each other now? It's something to think about. When we come to the Lord's table and its fulfillment, all that divides us will be healed and restored. Some of you may recall in 1984, there was a, an Oscar award-winning film that uh, was shown in 1984, Places 
in the heart. Does anybody remember that? A couple of you do. Places in the Heart, it was a movie that took place in Waxahachie, Texas during the Great Depression. It starred Sally Field, who won Best Actress that year, and she was a recent widow named Edna. Edna, at the beginning of the film, loses her husband, the sheriff, Royce, to a tragic accidental shooting by a young black man who's drunk. And this young black man is then killed by the KKK, and his body is dragged through the town. And Edna needs to, to run the farm on her own, and she has two small children, and this curious cast of characters forms around her. It includes a homeless black man played by Danny Glover, and then Mr. Will, a blind white man played by John Malkovich. In the course of the movie, we watch Ed Harris's character cheat on his wife with her best friend, and their marriage falls apart. And then we see at the end the KKK nearly kill Danny Glover's character, and then he leaves the family. The movie is about the heart. The heart broken, the heart divided, and the heart healed. And all of it culminates in the final scene. At the end of the movie, there's a church scene of Holy Communion. It's a slow-moving scene, and we see the dead come back to life at the table. We see white and black together. We see marriage healed and restored at the table. I want to show you this film, but I want you to watch for a few things. When you first see the congregation in the pews, look at how few there are, and then watch the numbers and the participants in communion change. Let's watch the movie. This morning we take our text from 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verses 1 through 8. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and all knowledge, and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love is patient, kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. Love never ends. On the night before his crucifixion, our Lord gathered with his disciples. He broke the bread and blessed it, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and said, Drink, this is my blood, which I shed for thee.
the future reality that this meal points us to is that we will live in unity. We will live in unity, black and white, young and old, rich and poor, and that movie does such a good job capturing that. We can live in hope. We will live in unity. And then lastly, we see in this table that we will live with our Lord forever. I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now we see in a mirror dimly. We, we use our best eyes of faith to see the Lord, but then in the fulfilled kingdom we will see Him face to face. Have you ever wondered what His eyes look like, the Lord Jesus? To look right into His eyes, to see His face, we will get to do that. We will live with the Lord forever. While we were in Utah, Rupali and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. And it was a great opportunity for us throughout the time to reflect on 30 years together and the challenges and also the gifts and surprises that that time offered to us. And we went to dinner on the night of our anniversary, Tuesday night, to a restaurant that our son Jason recommended in Park City. And it's a nice restaurant, super restaurant. But at the very beginning, they did what really good restaurants do. They brought us something called an amuse-bouche. This is a, a little taste of something to come, and it's free, free of charge. And I asked Aaron Palmer, Dave Palmer, his wife, who works at Frosca, a great restaurant here in Boulder, tell me about amuse-bouche, and here's what she said. Amuse-bouche translates to delight of the mouth, something that's not on the menu, but gives guests a glimpse of the chef's style and type of cuisine that is to come. It showcases what is to come, and simultaneously increases your appetite in one magical bite. When we send out an amuse, she writes, we always say it's a gift from the kitchen. It's so fun to make guests feel special and drive excitement of what we have in store for them the rest of the night. Friends, this is the Lord Jesus's amuse-bouche. His chance for us to taste just in a little way the great glory to come, a meal and an age and a celebration and a reality that will include so many wonderful things. So let us come to this table now and keep in mind these things. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we do see in a mirror dimly and we long to see you face to face and we pray that this meal by your Holy Spirit would give us a taste of that which is to come. Bless us now and join us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.